real-life ghost stories. As you would have seen from the title, this episode is a conversation with Danny Robbins. In case you don't know who Danny is, I'm going to give you a bit of information from his bio to catch you up. Danny Robbins is an award-winning British writer, broadcaster and journalist. He created The Battersea Poltergeist, a podcast series for the BBC that combined drama and documentary to tell a real-life ghost story. It became a global phenomenon, the number one drama podcast across the whole world, with more than 4 million downloads and counting, sparking a bidding war for the TV rights. Danny is now adapting it with Hollywood producers Blumhouse. Danny's BBC podcast series Uncanny tells individual stories of paranormal encounters from ghosts to UFOs and is another multi-million download hit. As well as all of this, Danny's play 222, A Ghost Story, a contemporary set modern supernatural thriller, opened in the West End in August 2021, playing to full houses and rave reviews. It returned for a second run in December 2021 and is still running today starring Tom Felton. He is currently working on an immersive theatre experience which tells the story of Guy Fawkes called The Gunpowder Plot, which also stars Tom Felton. To be honest, I was a little bit fangirly pre and post this chat and it was absolutely wonderful to talk to Danny. I am a massive fan of his and all the work that he puts out. And as this was recorded remotely, please be aware that the audio quality is different to the main podcast. And as always, links to Danny's various projects will be in the description of this episode. So let's get into it. Okay, so we're going to go right back to the beginning. And I'm aware that I just really sounded like your therapist. Um, <laughs> what what sparked your interest in the paranormal and spooky things in general? Well, yeah, it's a good question. I think that the roots are kind of indirect. I think I grew up in an atheist household with a mum who had been a Catholic and renounced it and become really passionately, ardently atheist. And um, and I think I just was intrigued by the absence of belief in my house. And I think I'd go to my grandparents and they were these old Irish Catholics from uh, Cork and they had all these pictures of the Pope around and books about Popes and Jesus staring down at you in a kind of slightly scary holding his sacred heart. Yeah. But did you have the sacred heart that glowed? I, I just remember this one bleeding a lot in a very gory way, sort of like a scene I know the one. Film, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> here is my heart. But um, so I, 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 I remember being intrigued by all of that and just kind of wondering if I was missing out on something, I guess. And I mean, I think you know, as an atheist, you are outside of a club I mean you've got your own club I guess as an atheist but you're outside lots of different clubs lots of belief clubs and I just you know I think I was intrigued by the idea of was there some magic out there was there something I was missing out on and you know some people would have gone off and become you know Christians and found God I found ghosts I, I was just intrigued by that aspect of belief and um, I think I was reading lots of books about ghosts reading like the Usborne World of the Unknown book you know which is such a kind of classic for a lot of people as an entry point to ghosts and just getting more and more interested, I think. And I, I think I, I had an interest in the theatrical. I was quite a theatrical kid. I liked acting. And there was something about that, the, the theatre of the paranormal, I guess. You know, I kind of liked it. I liked the characters, you know, the, and uh, was intrigued by all aspects of the paranormal as well, not just ghosts, but UFOs and monsters and all that sort of thing. So, so I think it started quite early. And then I think there was another profound and seismic moment in my life when I was in my early 20s where I had a moment where I thought I was dying I had this 
moment I thought I was having a heart attack and I was convinced that uh, I was dying and I, I could see angels, I was hallucinating angels and I subsequently learned that it was a panic attack and as profound and horrible as it was, it wasn't obviously life-threatening. But but for me, it wasn't. It, it sort of sparked like a, a good sort of two years or so of being really terrified of death. And I think that that made me think a lot about the idea of the afterlife. And I think that was something that pushed me into, you know, having been interested in as a kid, that pushed me into kind of a greater interest as an adult, I think. And, and from there, it kind of grew. And, and I, I've just been so intrigued, I think. It feels to me like it's the final frontier, that, that idea of, is there something out there? It's the, the one thing that science cannot explain at the moment. And the idea that maybe one day we can is, is intriguing. I think, first of all, I think that the the Osborne world of the unknown, that book of ghosts, needs to come with some sort of warning because it is like a gateway drug. Like everyone you ever speak to is like, well, it started with this book and now I'm out here trying to find Bigfoot. I can't, I can't remember when it was published, but it was published a long time ago, wasn't it? I think it might have yeah. been even early 70s, something like that. But some of these things sort of handed down from generation to generation. But um, books of that time had really scary illustrations. Like I found a bunch of Agatha Christie books from that time in my grand's house and the covers of them are truly horrific. Like there's one of them with the, the face of a dead man. That's just, I mean, I remember as a kid, I used to see it. And I, it gave me nightmares. I couldn't look at it. So something about that period sparked really kind of just shockingly horrible illustrations. And there's definitely pictures in that book and pictures in other books I had as a kid about ghosts that that really stayed with me. And I know a lot of people talk about, I think there's ghost photos in, is it in yeah. that book or another one? I can't remember, but there's photos of, yeah. you know, people think they've captured ghosts and those imprint themselves on your mind. And there's also, do you remember, there's a there's a photo that was definitely circulated around that time in of, of a woman's leg. She's de um, yes, yes, spontaneously, spontaneously combusted. combusted. Yeah, and it's just her charred leg. And oh my God, stuff of nightmares. The worst thing is, is that is actually a real photo. Uh, I did an episode about it maybe a year ago. And I remember looking into it and thinking, ha ha, this will be funny. Like this will be, a... it's not funny. It's not, it's not a good, it's not an, an amusing little topic to talk about. That is, a, I always thought that picture was, you know, a fake, a hoax, whatever. Uh, no. No, no, yeah. Picture. yeah, 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 yeah. I, I do think as well that Irish Catholic grandparents have a huge amount to answer for when it <laughs> when it comes to belief in the supernatural and this fear of uh, things like the Sacred Heart. My nana had the same Sacred Heart mm. picture in her house, but her one glowed. It had like a oh, okay. glowing cross at the front of it. And when I used to live with her, like to go to the toilet, I had to go through the sitting room. And at nighttime, I used to literally psych myself up to run past the same. Yeah, I, 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 exactly that. I, I was exactly the same. I'd go and stay at their house and I would have to like literally run through this section in the dark. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? You know? It's wild. <laughs> it's like the people who made those pictures were like Catholicism, you know, God, comfort, joy. No, we want trauma and fear. That's what we want. <laughs> fear is what sticks out from your childhood most, I think. You know, I, I find like I've forgotten so much of my childhood. My mum says to me, like, can you remember this really happy thing we did? That was great fun. I'm going, I can't remember any of that. But I remember the fear. I remember how I felt in those moments. Or I remember, you know, a, a moment where, you know, I thought my dad was going to crash the car or, you know, like um, when my dad, a stone landed on his head and he was bleeding and I was really frightened. You know, I mean, I, I remember th those moments. Fear stays with you. And that, that for me is, you know, the striking thing about all of the stories that, you know, that people tell me and, you know, that, that, that you do on your show. I mean, it, it's, it's the fear that leaps out. And so, people sometimes say to me, 
you know, there's a very small little tiny minority of conspiracy theorists who ask me if the people telling stories on my show are, are actors and making it up. I've written them. And they say, well, you know, real people can't be this eloquent. And I'm like, yeah, they can. And the reason they're that eloquent is the fear. If you have been that frightened, you remember it in crystal clear detail and you want to describe it accurately to people because you want them to feel the fear that you felt yourself. And I wonder if, because um, I get that too every so often where somebody will contact me and they'll say, in this episode, you said this. And in this episode, you said that. And that shows that you're writing all these stories. It's it, No, people aren't sending them in. I knew it wasn't real. And I think sometimes is there an element of really not wanting this to be real or seeing something in it that makes you go, oh, I don't like that. That's making me feel uncomfortable. So I need this. I need her to be making this up right now. I need her to not be not be actually getting these stories from people. I, I think that's probably true. And I think, you know, there is a kind of mass reluctance to accept this because clearly it's mind blowing. It changes the whole nature of the world as we know it. And I think you see that in the people who've had these experiences. You see the life changing nature of it and the impact it has on them. And it could be decades and decades later, but they still haven't got over this moment. And I think not being able to explain things is not a good situation for human beings. We don't like that. We we want to be able to explain things. That's why, you know, we we have religion, really. Religion explains yeah. things for us, doesn't it? You know, ever since the dawn of time, we've explained everything from sunsets to death by finding gods and, and you know, finding religious explanations for it. You know, the idea that we genuinely can't explain the experience that we've been through is very unsettling, I think. Your need to know about the paranormal led to haunted and then led to, I mean, we'll come to the Battersea Poltergeist in a few minutes, but led to Uncanny. Have you had a story on either of those podcasts or that somebody has told you in general? Because I'm sure people tell you their ghost stories all the time now. Uh, have you had a story that's really stuck with you, that's made you go, oh, wow, that's that's the one that makes me wonder, is this real? I mean, so so many of them, really. It's odd. The, the one that sort of sticks out at me most from Uncanny you know, my most recent series is not the kind of flashiest or the most attention grabbing at all. And it's not one of the ones that most people would probably pick out as a, a series favorite, but it's this story told to me by this woman called Laura, who had seen the ghost of her best friend. And something about that is it's very emotive. And, you know, she'd lost her best friend very, very young. I think Laura was about 19. The best friend was early 30s and she'd been a kind of very inspiring figure to her and and she saw her after her death and that that in itself is striking but then about seven years afterwards she went to see a medium with a group of friends in a village hall and and she you know she wasn't the sort of person who goes to see a medium whatever that is you know but she she just turned up at this village hall for a bit of an entertainment a bit of a laugh thought the medium was quite rubbish didn't think anything of it but after the show when you know the lights were off and when there was no one around the medium said to her, there was a message for you, described her best friend, and then said the actual last words of the best friend to her, said this was the message to you, and it was the, the, the dying words of the best friend. And that one, every way I interrogate that, I sort of find it very, very hard to find an explanation for it. And it's the one that when I read the original email, it sent the biggest shiver down my spine. And and it's the one that I guess that sort of hints to me most at the possibility that that life continues. So yeah, that's probably that 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 sticks with me a lot. But I mean, you know, there's so many of them. Louis Belt, Room Six Eleven. I'm sort of saying yeah. these, hoping that people listening know those <laughs> cases as well. But you know, there's you know, the, 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 I, I, what I love about these cases, what I love about them all, is 
that they are detective stories. And I love a detective story. I love trying to solve something. But I always think like the, the journey, for me, the journey is the fun bit. Once you reach the end of a detective story, once you reach the end of your you know, Agatha Christie or whatever, that's where the fun stops. You have to stop reading. You know, you, you, it's, the, it's the reading it, the kind of being in the middle of the, the, the puzzle that's the exciting bit. And I feel like with all these ghost stories, that's where we are. We're in the middle of the puzzle. We're trying to solve these things. We're on this investigative journey. But the nice thing about all of these stories is they, they keep giving, you know, like, you, yeah. you know, we, we probably will not find a definitive answer. I mean, the moment where I can come out and tell you this is definitely a ghost, you know, or definitely not a ghost, you know, is, you know, I mean, will, will that ever happen? I don't know. That, that is the moment where the kind of the journey stops. And I, I, I love being on this journey, I think. And I think, you know, you look at the Enfield poltergeist, Battersea, you know, Room 611, any of these cases, and they're all kind of robust enough to sceptic inquiry, that they, they they retain their secrets. And that's why we keep talking about them. There was so many stories on uh, on Uncanny that literally made me gasp. Do you know what I mean? Well, like I'd be listening and then there'd be another little bit to the story and I'd go, oh, no way. And I am, like I am annoyingly, I think, uh, very sceptical, which stresses out some listeners sometimes where, they're, where they think that I should be an ardent believer. Uh, but I think I read somewhere in an interview that you said it's like, for believers, it's like a who done it, and mm. for non-believers, it's a how done it. You're trying to figure out what could have caused it. So T- there's totally. something in it for everyone. Yeah, and I think that's the pleasure. I think you know, basically, most paranormal shows, particularly paranormal TV shows, are designed for believers. You know, pe- people run around often with night vision cameras on, screaming, and it's exciting. But you know, th- there isn't a, a real interrogation of it. You know, it's an, an acceptance. You know, you go to a castle. You go to a pub or whatever, and you know it's haunted. We're going to find the ghosts, and there's a pressure then to kind of find the ghosts, and so that's where some of those shows get into sort of needing to kind of manufacture, at the very least, scares, and and the most you know kind of actually people inventing spirit contact. You know, to have a show where where you can attract skeptics and believers in equal measure, I think is is exciting, and to reach out to those two very big groups, and then also that even bigger group in the middle who are people who aren't sure, and I love that, and I love the fact that people can enjoy it in their own way. And it can be a detective story, whether you believe or, or a skeptic, you know, you're kind of looking for different things. You've still got the same idea of this cast of suspects. You've got, you know, your suspects in yeah. a ghost story might be people, you know, who, who hoaxed it. They might be a, a ghost, you know, who are the historical figures who've come back and haunted this place, you know, and, and also they might be things. They could be like infrasound or carbon monoxide poisoning, those kind of things. So, you know, it, it's fun. I think what Uncanny and Battersea Poltergeist do they they kind of empower you to be a detective they give you the material you know like I've dug into this I've heard the story here's the story now you go off and and see what you think and so people go off and they kind of do their research and they go back to old newspaper archives they you know they kind of contact Battersea Library and get maps out and you know I mean they turn up to places I had this beautiful moment recently where I went to Rottingdean which was where one of our Battersea sorry one of our uncanny cases was set um, the return of Elizabeth Dacre. And it was this old uh, place called Tudor Close, this uh, set of houses that used to be a hotel that had been built in this windswept town, Rottingdean. And I, I was in Brighton for the weekend with my wife, and I, I thought, let's just go and have a look at Rottingdean. Dragged dragged her over. And I'm walking through this graveyard to look at the house, and I hear, Danny, Danny! And I look across, and there's some uncanny fans who are doing exactly the same thing there. And they're like, what are you doing here? You know, and I was like caught out on a pilgrimage to my own show's location, you know. But but I love that, you know, the fact that people go off and try and investigate the places, go and go and, you know, kind of explore them themselves. 
I think we need to talk about Battersea Poltergeist because that was how, that was when I first came across you and I listened. I used to listen when I was out running and then I had to stop doing that because I was running so quickly because I was freaking out that I was like, I'm going <laughs> to die. I'm going to die if I keep doing this. And I was so gripped by the Battersea Poltergeist that I was like, telling my mom about it on the phone. My mom has never listened to a podcast, including my own. She's been on my podcast and she's never listened to it. Um, <laughs> so I was even telling her about it. Why Why did you decide to do the Battersea Poltergeist specifically? Like, why that case? It was one of those stories where you just feel like you, you can't not do it. it. It was like such a such a gift as a storyteller. And um, I, I've been making this show Haunted, which was individual ghost stories. And, you know, if you like, that's the kind of prototype of... of the shows I've made um and then during it this guy Alan Murdy who some people might know of he's like a kind of legendary sort of figure on the the British paranormal scene um one of the SPR and he was chairman of the ghost club and so he's kind of quite a you know a font of ghost knowledge and he said to me you know there's this case I've been looking into and there's a huge great box of material on it loads of evidence and the woman it happened to she was 15 in 1956 and she's 80 now would you like to talk to her? And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll talk to her. And then I talked to her and I met Shirley, this amazing woman, and heard her story. And I could just hear this one quality in her voice that intrigued me and made me want to tell this story. And that quality was fear and, and the fact that she still felt fear after all this time, you know. And um, and I was fascinated. I believed totally that she believed the story that she was telling. And whether we feel it was a ghost or not, you know, she was utterly convinced by what happened. So, yeah, and, and, you know, the more I dug into this story and the more I sort of got to explore the evidence that there was, you know, the kind of diaries from the family, the original case notes of Harold Chibbert, the investigator, uh, you know, newspaper archives and all this sort of material. I just felt like this, this is so rich. There's loads here. It's a huge story to tell. And it's a story that kind of really gets to the very heart of this. You know, it, it's about does life carry on after death? And, and it's about a family that's very identifiable, very recognisable. It's a kind of a situation we could all plunge ourselves into, I think, a family kind of cooped up in their house and particularly felt really relevant during lockdown, yeah. I think, that kind of claustrophobia of it. And they're, and they're scared, they're terrified. And you kind of think, if this can happen to them, it could happen to me. And and it felt really real and really, and for that reason, really scary. And so I just, you know, I, I wanted to tell it. And the, the reason we chose to tell it for a mixture of drama and documentary, which I felt like, you know, felt like a risk because, you know, those those two things aren't necessarily everybody's cup of tea. You know, people who love documentary podcasts don't necessarily love drama podcasts mm -hmm. um, and vice versa, maybe. And, um, and But I wanted to use drama because I wanted to bring the original haunting to life. And unlike, you know, so, some documentaries, you've got your archive material. You know, you kind of, you're watching a documentary about the mafia and you see all these interviews with mafia bosses and you've got all that and you've got the kind of archive of 1970s New York. We didn't have any of that because 1956 was before people started recording stuff. You know, people couldn't afford tape recorder even let alone a video recorder so unlike Enfield which is two decades later where tv crews turn up and you get the filmed interviews we had none of that you know and um and so so I, I used the drama to create my own archive if you like I brought these characters to life so that you could see and hear what was in these diaries what was in the you know the investigators records really and and, and it, it worked I think and it, it allowed us to have the original haunting coming to life and then my investigation and these two parallel strands these split narratives and yeah and it just I mean I couldn't have imagined how it would blow up it just absolutely exploded it became this worldwide phenomenon it had like two page 
spreads in literally every British tabloid newspaper. And clearly, the reason for that is that we were just hungry for another ghost story. We'd done things like Enfield to death. We'd talked about all that, you know, Borley Rectory. We'd talked about yeah. those big ones. We wanted something meaty to get our teeth into, and Battersea felt meaty enough, I think, for that. And was there a moment, that was actually my next question, like, was there a moment when you knew, oh, this is going to be a phenomenon? Because it went to, like, number one on worldwide on the drama podcast charts, and now it's being made into a TV show at Bloomhouse, if I understand that correctly. Yeah, was, yeah, I'm, was, I'm writing it at the moment. Um, that's yeah, wild. I mean, as, as, as to when uh, I realised that, I don't know, really. I mean, it, it just, I, I think, you know, I, I very quickly saw that it was getting a lot of interest. You know, we were getting these big newspaper archive, uh, uh, articles and, um, and you know, the, our press guy at the BBC was like, yeah, this isn't normal, you know, Radio radio 4 shows or, you know, BBC podcasts don't normally get this amount of publicity. Um, so that that was clearly something. And then, you know, like, you know, there was like this morning, the telly stuff. and But really, I mean, it was the response, I guess, from the listeners that was the most profound thing. Like, very quickly, we were getting hundreds and hundreds of emails on it. Incredible social media. And like, when we did a listen along on Twitter, that was really yeah. huge loads of people involved in that so you could just see that it was capturing a moment and I think I think our decision as well to release it as a serial and to not release it all in one box set as you know was the model for a lot of things before then keeping that excitement the cliffhanger thing going yeah. I think was also it was giving people something to look forward to during lockdown I think you were kind of as much as you grumbled about not having the next episode you were kind of also quite enjoying the fact that you had to wait a bit you were plunged back into that thing of being a kid and waiting for the next episode of Doctor Who or whatever it was so yeah that was good but you know and then it got to the kind of mad stage where I've got like Jason Blum head of Blumhouse on the phone to me on a Sunday afternoon trying to persuade me to sell the film rights to them and and um you know that that was very exciting and then there was this kind of bidding war of lots of different production companies wanting to make it and you kind of at a certain point you realize that yeah okay this is this is a story that's really really just caught people's imagination and kind of crossed over into being something kind of that transcends itself. It's kind of got bigger than just being a podcast, you know? I mean, yeah, it, it's 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 lovely. It's lovely. But I, I would say the one proudest thing I have about the whole experience is that sense of the community that has built yeah. around these shows. And I love the fact that in our divided, divisive, polarised world of I love this, I hate that, I disagree with you, I hate you, that actually we've got sceptics and believers, totally divergent opinions, just coming together and having a good time and enjoying it and being respectful. And, and if you look yeah. at any of the social media around Uncanny or Fantasy Poltergeist, it is so respectful and kind and supportive. And you can have people who go, you know, I think that person is completely mistaken. Doesn't That's not a ghost at all. They're completely wrong. But they're still very supportive of the fact that this person has gone through something profound. And, you know, they, they're not derisory. They don't sneer at them. They don't say they're lying. You know, you, you can you can agree to disagree and still be kind. Yeah, wasn't it, wasn't it Richard Wiseman in Paranormality where he said, you know, the point of ghost stories isn't really that you're, you know, for a lot of people, a ghost story is an experience that is, like you said, really profound and it impacts them forever. And for that reason, it's true. And it's okay yeah. to, to, to not agree and not believe, but you also have to recognise that that thing that has happened has really impacted that person. And I see on Twitter all the time people doing the hashtag uncanny community with their questions and with their like oh I need advice about this I saw one the other day about um 
a woman who her daughter was doing a project for school. Yes, yeah, yeah. For, oh, on about whether or not ghosts were real, and she just tweeted out the uncanny community hashtag, and people were chiming in. It was yeah, so yeah. Nice. I mean, her, her daughter had asked if the spooky podcast guy could could help oh. answer the question of do ghosts exist and and ask his followers. So so I did. But um, yeah, no, it's it, it is lovely. And I mean, you're you're completely on on the money there, where you say that they, these are these stories are true, and you know whatever ghosts are people see ghosts they experience ghosts and you know you can believe that ghosts are infrasound or you know carbon monoxide poisoning whatever whatever you want to kind of um believe they are you know but but that, that doesn't lessen the profundity of the experience or the fear that people feel you know i think that there there is a stigma now there wasn't in the past about talking about this stuff and i think a lot of people are quite wary about voicing their experience because i think you know, being laughed at is not nice, but actually having your mental health questioned is far scarier, I think, and particularly for, for younger people maybe as well. Um, I, I just think that, that 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 is a big hurdle to get over, actually. And there are people telling me their stories where they've never told anybody else before. And the idea of creating a safe space, I think, and creating that kind of same feel of the confessional box where, mm. you know, you, you feel like your, your story is going to be treated with respect and, and gravitas and all that sort of stuff I think I think that's really important really really important I need to do a quick fire question before we mm. go any further favorite scary movie oh gosh that's a good one um Scream was such a huge one for me I just love Scream I love the fact that it was postmodern and self-referential I love that but th- I mean the one that has absolutely freaked me out the most possibly was Don't Look Now that little figure in the red coat uh, oh, do you know I don't one? think I've seen oh, it. I'll check it out. It's, a, it's an old one. It's a seventies one. It's got Donald Sutherland and Julie Christian, I think. But it's it's about that they they've lost their child and um, you know, they sort of start seeing like kind of ghostly um, versions of her. And it's so creepy. It's a little girl in a red mac. Anyone who knows that will just instantly get that image of the red mac in their in their minds. And there's one particular moment. I won't spoil it, but there's one particular moment where oh. It's so scary. But um, yeah, I mean, oh my God. And then another one that absolutely properly freaked me out was the Babadook. I was traumatized by the Babadook. Yeah, traumatized. Yeah, okay, yeah. I, I had to watch it in like five minute installments. I was there with the remote controller just kind of eking it out, going, oh, I can't, oh no, stop, stop now. <laughs> and I don't know what it was about that movie. I remember being so freaked out by it. And I said to my sister, oh, I, I've just watched this film and it really scared me. And her and my um, my cousins watched it and they were like, that was so stupid. What were you scared of? And I was like, really? really? Oh no! Was I mean, it? I, I, I think that it's the fact that you get into oh. the mother's head and that you're not sure if it's all in her head, you know, or, or it's a supernatural thing for real. And and I, I just feel like, for me, I mean, maybe it's having become a parent as well. But I, I find the ones about possession, the possession of a kid or possession of a parent, so unsettling. That that disruption of that that most intimate, most sacred of relationships, that parent-child relationship. I watched, watched one the other day called Oculus, which is about... Yes, haven't par- seen parents, it, but I know yeah, the one, pa- yeah. Parents kind of getting slowly possessed and, you know, the, the kids having to sort of defend themselves against their parents. And, oh, I mean, God, it's dark. It took me to a dark place. I sort of felt like I was in a really weird mood for the rest of the day after watching that. Those are the good ones, though, the ones where for a couple of days afterwards, you're like, I, I still don't feel quite okay. And yeah, I, don't, yeah, yeah. I don't know what's happening here. Yeah. In the middle of all of this, like in the middle of everything that's been going on, 222 came out yeah. in, in the middle of it all. And then like, if people don't know what that is, it's this, it's a stage show um, that you wrote that was, that came out. When was it? Well, it's an interesting one, 222. It, it, it was on for the first time in the summer of 
last year of 2021. Yes, yes that's what And I we saw, had Lily, yeah. Lily Allen start in it, which was very exciting, you know, which kind of got mm. a lot of attention. But yeah, it's called 222, A Ghost Story. And it's, and it's essentially, it's, it is a ghost story. It's about a, a woman who believes that the house is haunted and her husband is a really resolute skeptic scientist who refuses to believe in ghosts. And it's a kind of about the impact on their relationship of this irreconcilable difference between them. And so she makes him and their friends who are over for dinner stay up until the point when the ghost normally appears for her, which is 2.22. And the, the idea is, will the ghost appear or not? And and it's a sort of psychological thriller. And yeah, and it came out um, after the Battersea Poltergeist. And there's a tendency for people to kind of assume that I kind of rustled it up, knocked it up uh, after Battersea. But actually, it predates everything. It predates Haunted as well. I, I started writing it about five years ago. And it sprang out of a conversation with a friend where she told me that she'd seen a ghost. And and I remember at that point thinking, you are not the sort of person I would imagine to have seen a ghost. And, and now, subsequently, having made all these shows, I don't feel that there is a sort of person who sees a ghost. I think it happens to... It can happen to anybody. But but at that moment, I, I thought that. And I also remember thinking that amongst our friendship group, people would react in di- very different ways. You know, and like mm. some people would laugh at her. Some people would think she was crazy. Some people would think she, you know, be annoyed and go, why are you making this up? And I was thinking, what happens if you put that into a relationship? How, how, how would that affect a relationship? So that's where it grew from. And as part of the research for that, I put out a shout out on social media saying, does anybody I know have any ghost stories? Has anyone seen a ghost? And people started sending stuff to me. And then quickly it grew and it was not just friends, but friends of friends and then strangers. And it kind of spread out. And, and that's what Haunted came from, because I felt like these stories were amazing and I didn't want to just keep them for research. I wanted to kind of share them and, and explore them more. So then I made Haunted and then Haunted led to Battersea and Battersea led to Uncanny. But but really, 222 is the precursor of it all, I guess. You know, And it took a while to get the show on because just, you know, takes a long time to write a play and then and then the pandemic and everything. And I think, you know, by the time it went on, you know, Battersea had given it a bit of a platform. And, and you know, I was somebody who was perhaps, you know, perceived to be somebody who knew a thing or two about ghosts. So then then I guess maybe it was taken a bit more seriously. But yeah, I mean, it's great. I sort of feel like it fits absolutely into what we were talking about earlier, that, that clash between scepticism and belief and the kind of embodying those two arguments in these two people. Because it's quite a brave thing to do. I remember when I went to see it, um, because I went to see it in the summer when it first came out. And I remember going and thinking, like, because obviously you've got the ghost story, the ones that people know on stage in the West End, like the woman in black. Do you know what I mean? Everybody knows Mm. it. Everybody's seen it at some point. Everybody's done GCSC drama and gone to see the woman in black. And it's, it's setting that ghost story in the modern time is really interesting. And I don't, I can't say too much because... I don't want to. I don't want to give away anything that will that will hint at the story for people who haven't gone to see it. But the use of modern technology in it, I thought, was really clever and really brave. And I and I did think it spoke, like you were saying earlier, it spoke to something about being a woman, just how having had a baby, having all these experiences, people not taking you seriously because people go, "Oh, you're just tired. You've just had a baby. You're just this." And actually not being listened to in when you're having this really horrible experience and people kind of trying to dismiss it constantly. And it really, it really spoke to something when mm. I watched it. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I think that that's a really interesting point. I think there there is a real sexism in a lot of the way the paranormal is talked about. And, and you know, a lot of stories seem to fall into models of female victim and male aggressor you know the kind of the poltergeists that are attributed male 
energies, activities, you know, which is a real indictment of masculinity, I think, because, you know, you've got this kind of threatening, sinister presence in the house and you instantly assume it is a male. I mean, that, what does that say about, uh, you know, the relationship between men and women in general? But, you know, also just, you know, you're right about women not being trusted, women being perceived to be kind of hysterical creatures, you know, and that, that kind of whole sort of, you know, history of, you know, the, the kind of labelling of hysteria, you know, and I think, um, you know, absolutely, I think that comes across in the play, that kind of idea of the mansplaining element of the yeah. the sceptic. But yeah, also the, the technology. I mean, you know, it's not a spoiler to say that we use Alexa in the show, you know, that the, the family use an Alexa. And funnily enough, I received an email the other day offering me a free Alexa. And it was somebody working for Amazon who'd been to see the show and, and said, we're so happy that Alexa's had her West End debut. Would you yeah, like an Alexa? On, Alexa. Like, yeah, <laughs> fair play. All right. You know, they were like, no, no, you know, no strings attached. Here's an Alexa. Um, so that was quite nice. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I just, I, I'm really interested in how we tell ghost stories for the modern world. And I think, you know, ghost stories have traditionally occupied that world of uh, steamy, smoky train platforms and gaslit streets, and you know the the Mr. Jamesian world of kind of you know, yeah, kind of libraries and stately homes and that sort of thing. And yeah, and I just feel like you know, how do you tell these stories for a modern audience in the modern world? And, and you know, if we were going to come back and haunt people, we absolutely would use the single most important thing in all our lives, which is tech. You know, like most people prioritize tech over their own family. You know, like. Go to yeah. any playground and you will see parents wandering around staring at the screen of their phone, completely ignoring their child who's trying to get their attention. You know, th- these things have become more important to us than, than people. And so, of course, we would use those things. And, of course, we would find ways to, to um, you know, to, to occupy those devices and send, you know, emails and WhatsApp messages and, you know, Tinder profiles, whatever, you know, like from that. Uh, <laughs> From the dead, you from know, beyond um, the grave. No, I, I, I know, and 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 you are literally haunted by the dead because if you're on Facebook, you know, you do you do see the profiles of people that mm. you've lost, and um, and in some cases, those those things are are continued by their loved ones, you know. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 interesting. I think that they're exploring that aspect of you know how ghosts can still exist in the modern world because they don't have the places to hide they used to, you know. No. And, and we do have smartphones, things like that. That's one of the things that people often say to me, like. You know, it, it, so it's the reason we haven't had a poltergeist recently because of smartphones. You know, you you know, there's been nothing since Enfield. You wouldn't, cap, cap, you know, all that. And I'm going, well, actually, you're wrong. There's loads of poltergeists. I'm getting emails all the time from people having poltergeist experiences, and they're like, well, how come they haven't captured it on the smartphone? And I'm like, well, you know, when your kid did that absolutely amazing thing, said that brilliant thing that was, you know, the most hilarious thing ever. Did you capture it on your smartphone at the moment? Of course you didn't, because it was in the moment. You didn't have your phone ready to get it. So, you know, if something suddenly flies across the room, you know, you're not going to capture that moment. You know? But at the same time, I, I totally appreciate that, you know, if things are happening consistently, then, then you know, th- there should be, and in theory could be, an ability for technology to capture that. And I kind of understand the sceptic frustration and the kind of feeling that technology should be able to crack these mysteries. Oh, yeah. I mean, I do. Uh, I put up stuff on TikTok every so often and TikTok's a funny old medium because you're you're automatically put into the timeline of people who don't who who aren't interested so you'll have the the people who are interested in the paranormal and then the people who are online going I can't believe people believe this you must be stupid if you believe this blah 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 and it's always so why did nobody take a picture why, why did nobody yeah. why did nobody get their phone out <laughs> I, I, I have seen some really interesting videos there was a great one of um 
I've had dog having its lead, uh, its collar taken yes. off. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But, the, but the, I think the dog is in a cage and it's sort of lifted up and then the, the collar just comes off it and goes off. And I, d- I don't know if that's a very clever fake or if that's that's something real, but it, it was certainly something that was very eerie to watch. I always think if it's a really clever fake, I'm like, I'm impressed. If that's a clever yeah, fake, yeah, I'm impressed. Because you know, that, that's a ghost story in itself, isn't it? You know, you know, yeah. people write ghost stories and you can write a, a very short TikTok ghost story you know you know make a very clever fake that that has all the enjoyment of a ghost story um i mean it's, it's all about the intention isn't it if you're intentionally kind of misleading people and exploiting people um then that's a bad thing you know there, there was a what was the the is it called dear david or something yes. the kind of twitter thing i mean it's 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 always tricky ground when you're sort of trying to sell something as authentic and then it turns out to be a fake. You know, inevitably people are going to feel a bit let down, but it doesn't kind of diminish the storytelling. But it does. It's the boy who cried wolf, I guess, essentially, isn't it? You know, and then can people trust you in anything after that point? But um, yeah, then but, and yeah. then when the point comes where you're really haunted and everyone's like, no, no, yeah, <laughs> we've been down yeah. this road. I know exactly <laughs> when when the demons really do come to you. But um, I, I, you know, it, it is intention because I think the trouble with those kind of things is there's a lot of people. You know, and ghosts play a really important role in their life. They're an emotional connection to people they've lost. And if you start kind of giving them material that makes them feel vindicated and validated and, you know, ghosts are real, and then you pull the rug away from them, then that's kind of unsettling, I think. And I I think, like, in in so much of this, intention is really important. With scepticism, I sort of think, like, why are you trying to debunk the story? Is it to reduce somebody's fear like if somebody's really scared too scared to be in their house even and you can explain what they believe to be the ghost and explain that actually it's caused by your boiler or your refrigerator or you know mice or whatever you know if you can explain away the fear then that's a really good use of skepticism that's great that's Mm. actually helping people if somebody's mourning the loss of a loved one and they feel they smell that person in the house and they feel that a picture falling off a mantelpiece is a sign of that person being present and you know, whatever it is, you know, then trying to debunk it is not helping them, you know, potentially. You know, that, that, that's kind of taking away a comfort. So in that situation, the scepticism would feel cruel in that way. But then if that person is being exploited by, say, a bogus psychic and being kind of ripped off for loads and loads of money then at that point you know you do want to explain you do need to explain so I think context and intention is so key to how yeah you know how we try and explain stories you know for, for me fundamentally the idea of everything being explainable and you know the kind of cover all explanations I, I just I hate that idea I want there to be mystery out there I love the fact that this could all be real I, I'm absolutely a skeptic who wants to believe and I, I just think that I, I I absolutely love the fact that the skeptics on our show are kind of so open-minded and they mm. never ever close their minds off. They're always, you know, I, I could be wrong. I love that I could be wrong. I think the danger of some skepticism is that it becomes about cover-all explanations, kind of one-size-fits-all yeah. explanations. So, look, well, this is this is this kind of experience is sleep paralysis. You know that that you know uh, I don't need to hear any more. You know, there's a figure in your room. Definitely sleep paralysis. Definitely hallucination. You go, but, but hang on, I can just. Listen to the specifics of the story. Just, you know, just look at that because that doesn't actually quite fit that explanation. No, no, I don't need to hear that. I don't need to hear any more. You know, it's definitely covered by that explanation. You know, it sort of, it can sometimes creep into that territory, I think, of like yeah. the, 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 the details are not important. It's the kind of, you know, the broad brushstrokes. And actually, 
you know, a lot of the stories, particularly on Uncanny, you kind of feel like once you get into the details, it gets really, really weird and really inexplicable. And actually, that's that's where you go like, mm, this isn't a simple one. I have one more question for you because I'm very conscious of taking up your morning. And it's a very important question. It's probably the most important question of, of our entire conversation. And that is, how did you end up getting a number 11 song in the chat? <laughs> uh -huh. Who was reading your website yesterday? Yeah, that was me. So <laughs> I, I did have a number 11 hit single. That is right. Um, <laughs> and I, I did it by accident. So me and two other guys, a guy called Marcus Brigstock and a guy called Dan Tetzel, had written some sketches, some comedy sketches together. I, I have this whole kind of like former life, past life as a comedy writer. And um, so we'd written these sketches on a Channel 4 show. And one day we were walking through a branch of HMV and we heard this song playing and there was a, a, a quote in the song. It kept saying this kind of sample again and again. And we were like, what is that? We really recognise that. Is that from a film? What is that? And we went, hang on a minute. That's us. And this DJ had sampled our comedy sketch. And uh, and so we had to track him down. We had to find him down. We got like our agent on the case. And this guy was called DJ Decline, D-E-E-K-L-I-N-E, -E -E, Decline. And the song was called Don't Smoke. And the song and the quote was about, like, I don't smoke the reefer. Uh, uh, do you smoke, Paul? No, I don't smoke uh, cigarettes. I don't smoke a pipe. I don't smoke the reefer. And... Um, and it became this huge garage track at a time when that garage was kind of popular. And, and it went to number 11 and he was on top of the pops. And it was a big track. You know, it was all these compilation albums in the kind of days when number 11 still meant something, you know. And um, yeah. and uh, and basically we, he had to pay us royalties. We kind of had to sign this publishing contract with Warner Chapel Music. And he had paid us royalties. And he, he was furious because he didn't know where the sample came from. He'd sampled it off his mate's answer phone. And so he didn't know it was written by some comedy writers and he didn't like having to hand over money at all. And he started complaining because he also had these other bits in the song and like that, ooh, ooh, ah, ah. And he was trying to claim that every ooh, ooh and ah, ah was a word as well. So he was starting to say like, well, actually the, the sample, which was the only words in the song, you know, well, the sample is actually only 40% of it because 60% of it is ooh, oohs and ah, ah's, you know. Aww. And uh, we had this whole debate about it, but we, we ended up making a few thousand pounds each out of it. It was quite... Oh, I mean, how bizarre to be walking through HMB and just be like, Hang on a second. I recognise that. Oh, wait, it's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, my, you know, I am the most unmusical person in the history of the world. I, you know, like when you go to watch a musical or a pantomime and you have to kind of clap along with the songs. <laughs> I can't do that. I have to literally pretend. I'm. I, some people mime singing. I mime clapping. I cannot clap in time. So uh, that's how unmusical I am. I'm so unmusical that when I had... Uh, keyboard like like I learned the kind of electronic keyboard as a kid you know sort of playing like you know oh when the saints oh when the saints uh I, I my teacher told my mum to stop sending me because it was a waste of money so um I, I it, the great tragedy of my life is a lack of musical ability so to vicariously have a number 11 hit single was just the pinnacle of my achievement that the, the two musical achievements I've had in my life are a number 11 hit single I had nothing to do with and coming second in the UK Air Guitar Championships as well. I did see so, that. you know, another yeah, thing I... that requires no actual musical ability at all. I also saw that you were robbed. Is that true? I mean, do we have that on record that you oh, were I, robbed? I, I, I mean, sorry, I thought you meant literally robbed. Um, <laughs> I, I was once mugged as well. That, that wasn't particularly something I'd chat about. But but um, no, I, I yeah, I mean, we should have won. We should have won. Mm. I, I, you should be talking to a UK Air Guitar Champion right now, but... But, to be honest, uh, I feel like corrupt this... judging in, 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 <laughs> came in came in between me and my my prize. 
this conversation would have definitely had more weight if you were number one. Oh, I think so. Rather yeah, than yeah, coming yeah. second, to be <laughs> yeah. honest. <laughs> My life um, could have gone a very different route if I'd won that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Danny, I'm going to I'm going to let you go there because I have like I said, I'm very conscious of taking up all your morning and I and I don't and I know that you're the busiest man in the universe. <laughs> um, and I also know that you're working on the gunpowder plot. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that launch so is actually more, yeah, if, if we allow ourselves coming. a little plug, then yeah. Um, if, if you want to see things that I'm doing, yeah, I'm doing two things. I'm doing an immersive theatre show about the gunpowder plot, Guy Fawkes. Uh, at these amazing vaults opposite the Tower of London. It's, yes. it's basically kind of theatre show meets virtual reality, meets kind of tourist attraction, meets like being on a film set. It's amazing. It's like using all this different tech. It's like this kind of movie about the gunpowder plot come to life. You've got live actors there. You've got virtual reality. You've got these amazing sets that make you feel like you're in Jacobean London. So it's really exciting. And you are plunged into this thing where you are a spy trying to infiltrate the gunpowder plot and then you're torn between the two things like do you side with the plotters do you side with the the crown and again it's that kind of like you know we were talking about belief and skepticism it's that thing of tugging you one way or another you know which way do you go so that that opens on may 19th and then 222 a ghost story reopens at the criterion theater in the west end on may 7th and that's starring tom felton draco malfoy from harry potter and Mandip Gill, who is Yaz from Doctor Who. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, two exciting things this summer, both running for a long time. I think 222 is May till September, and Gunpowder Plot is just running forever now, you know, for the next few years. So, so come and see me. And also, there will be some new uncanny episodes soon as well. You know, there will be things. Watch this space. Oh, I, I forgot that people can't see me. I was just a little happy Danny, <laughs> about having new uncanny episodes. I don't know. Look, to be honest with you, Danny, I don't know how you find the time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you I do it. I don't sleep at all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. I'll put all of your links to everything in the description. Of oh, the yeah, yeah, do that. Be great. A pleasure. An absolute pleasure.